Welcome to the Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill. Today, I am joined by Mark Anthony Kay. Greetings. Ma- Marcus Almighty, which I, I'd never use your real name. or I, it's, it's just, you are Marcus. And yes. welcome back, stranger from the north. Hello. Daniel. Thanks. Daniel, it's your pick today. And, you know, Mark just gave it away. We're yeah. talking about... Painkiller. Let's start off with you. Why? Why Painkiller? Why have you decided that that's the album that we're going to talk about today? Well, when I was a kid, we played a lot of hockey up here in the north. Uh, we had our local team, and before every game, you, need, you needed to get pumped up, you know, get ready for, for, for the battle. So the guys in control of the uh, volume knob, they played a lot of Metallica and Megadeth. This was maybe 92, 93, when uh, the Black Album was huge and you had um, Countdown to Extinction was also very popular over here. And so so we listened a lot to, to those uh, albums. And then I remember one guy playing something from an album. I, ha- I hadn't heard this one. And it was like Metallica and uh, Megadeth. But on top of that... They had this great vocalist, great singer. You can say anything you want about Hetfield or, or uh, uh, what's his name in, in Mustaine. Dave Mustaine. Great guitar player, but they have nothing on Rob Halford when it comes to vocals. Even though the way they sing uh, suits their bands. Uh, but when I heard, I think it was Painkiller, the song, I was floored. And uh, I had heard about Judas Priest before, but... They had never sounded like this. I've heard, you know, uh, the classic songs from uh, from early la- albums and, and liked them. But I always missed the, um, you know, the big drums, the big guitars and so on. And then I heard Painkiller and you had it all. You had the vocals. You had a great drummer. And later I understood that they had switched, uh, changed the drummer for this record. And man, did it show. So I think Scott Travis, Scott Travis was a, a perfect fit, at least for this time period, when uh, you know they they uh, took after to some extent the trash uh, bands that were coming up, and uh, they needed a, a different drummer because if you li- listen to the previous record by by Judas Priest, that drummer is nowhere near uh, Scott Travis, at least in technique and, and uh, you know, doing the double bass and, and all that. So it started off like that. It was like a Metallica on steroids for me. Very cool. So that's a great reason for the pick, and that's a great answer to the first question, which was going to be when did your interaction with Judas Priest commence? Because this kind of uh, you've already covered that, apart from you know knowing the hits casually. Mark, when did your interaction with Judas Priest commence? Well, this this was a moment in my musical upbringing that I'll never ever ever forget. I was in my senior years of high school. I'm pretty sure it was like grade 11, grade 12-ish. Um, don't exactly remember, but it was around that time. Cause I know it was like senior year because I think we were on a spare. And you always have like a spare period when you're in your senior year, right? So um, me and my friend Ian, I'll remember this clear as day. We were just hanging out for lunch. And he goes, hey, uh, let's go over to my house. I want, to ch- I, want to, I want you to check out something. So I went over there to his place. And he goes, take a listen to this. And he put on Painkiller. And he had it on cassette and he had a, there was nobody in the house so he blasted it like full out and i was like what the hell is this and he told me it was judas priest and to me i was like really like because i was a well aware of judas priest because again of the infamous older sister jane who had you know screaming for vengeance she had defenders of the fate she had british steel so i knew all these records from before but much like what uh daniel just said this was not the same Judas Priest that I had heard. It wasn't like living after me. It wasn't more like poppy-ish kind of, you know, commercially tinged sort of priest, you know. I mean, back in those days, it wasn't looked at that way. But still, compared to this, it was almost like listening to like, you know, the Backstreet Boys or something. It was so light compared to Painkiller and stuff like that. And 
the thing that stood out to me right away, and I was already starting to get, you know, slightly knowledgeable about music was I was like, who the hell is this drummer? So I looked it up on the cassette thing and I saw Scott Travis and I was like, oh, okay, now it makes sense because I was a huge fan of Racer X and I had gotten their first record and their second and second heat was on my stereo all the time. I had found it in California when I went with my dad and I bought the cassette and I listened to it and they have a cover on there of a heart of a lion, which is an unreleased Judas priest song that they put on their album. So there was already that connection with Judas Priest back then for Scott Travis, I think, and as far as the love of Judas Priest. And man, his drumming makes all the difference on this because I couldn't even imagine Dave Holland playing some of the songs that are on this song. Like, could you possibly imagine hearing Dave Holland play something like Hell Patrol or Leather Rebel or stuff like that? There's no way in hell that he could do it. I mean, you know, there, there was a, a great book that came out about Judas Priest years ago, and they talked about how they had a, a, a second drummer under the stage supporting Dave Hall, and he was that shit live. So, you know, let's not get into that right now. But, you know, Scott Travis was phenomenal. He, he is phenomenal. I mean, if you, if you don't believe it, never mind Painkiller, listen to the fight records. I mean, he's incredible oh, on that. So, but when I first heard this record, it completely floored me. Not only was it the drumming of Scott Travis, but Chris Zangidas, I think that's how you say his name, the producer on it, Sangreed, oh, you can you can correct me after, but uh, the guy who produced it was an absolutely fantastic job on this. I mean, those guitars have this really excellent chorusing on it. They're like razor blades when you listen yeah. to it blasting. And another thing that, that was really a big thing, a huge thing, was the guitar soloing of KK and Glenn Tipton. It has gone up three or four levels in technicality i mean sure they were always great lead players but i'm telling you their lead playing i was almost not buying it that it was them and there was a running rumor i don't know if you guys have heard of this but there was a running rumor back when that album came out that uli john roth was a ghost session player and he was the one who did all the leads on painkiller and at first i was kind of like eh, it, it's possible but uh, you know watching them live you can totally see that, you know, these were solos that they composed and they were so comfortable playing them. But it, it is, you know, you got to remember, you're listening to Ram It Down and Defenders of the Fate before that. And those solos, they were great solos, but they were more in line with like Iron Maiden, kind of melodic double twin stuff. This was like just on fire lead playing, double hand tapping, you know, all kinds of arpeggios, sweep picking stuff. They weren't doing this on records before, so they really stepped up their game. Yeah, and a big difference in the aggressive attack on those strings with how they were picking them. So, yeah, for me, my interaction with Jesus Priest starts 1980. You know, I've, I've told the story on other shows or maybe on this show or that, you know, we used to have friends who had a, you know, a lake house. I think it was the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. And we went there and one of their older brothers was playing British Steel and United just grabbed me you know for everything i was listening to at the time it stood out and stuck with me even though i didn't know who it was by and it took me five years to figure out who it was by because i got into the band with uh turbo and then started working my way back through the catalog with so many other things 1985 is that year for me that i really got into hard rock and heavy metal and started investigating those bands and you know i went back and you know discovered that oh united that was judas priest oh okay cool so i've had a love <laughs> affair with them ever since just because of that one kind of story that goes back 40 years now for me um so moving into the next question about judas priest with us you know daniel i guess you've already answered this you know what was your first judas priest album obviously i've just said that mine was turbo um mark what was your first um, well, as far as my first actually bought one, like I said, my sister had them in the house, but I don't consider them mine because I never really listened to them at all. But this was my first proper Judas Priest record. Like I said, I mean, I've heard the stuff before. I was familiar with it. Jane owned it. So, you know, it was always around and I could hear it. But this was one record I went out and I hunted down and I made sure I, you know, I, I had it in the house. And I mean, back when it came out, it was the the year it came out too, 1990, I believe it was. Yeah, 1990, it, the record came out uh, September 3rd, and I remember I had bought it. 
I had worn out two cassette copies by the end of my senior year because I was listening to it all the time. And one got chewed up in my stupid car stereo. Uh, I had a really shitty Ford Escort car and had this really crappy tape deck. I don't know why I risked it, but you know, I loved the album so much. I was listening to it and all of a sudden it was like, and it was gone. It was just got screwed up in my tape, in my tape deck there. I was like, shit. And I was just pulling tape out of the whole, you know, player in there. I was so pissed off, but you know, I've gotten numerous tape copies, CD copies, and just now when Judas Priest did the reissues of it, um, I don't know if they did already the reissue of this one, but I did find a copy of Judas Priest on vinyl. So happy I have it downstairs, and I've, I've been listening to that actually about a week ago. So, uh, yeah, Painkiller was my first record. All right, let's get this. It, it was a bit, it was a bit bittersweet because Painkiller was my first record, and then I was hoping for another one, but it took quite a while for, for a Jewish priest record with uh, Halford. Because when I looked back to like, uh, the previous album, and I liked a few songs like, uh, what's the name, Blood Red Skies was a great mm. song, but I couldn't get around the drumming, you know. When you start with Painkiller and you hear Blood Red Skies with a simple beat, uh, it doesn't really do it for you. So Scott Travis was always a uh, an important uh, piece of the puzzle and uh, I waited quite a few years but I actually had another favorite band called Kiss and uh, this was uh, to say yeah <laughs> Revenge was released and Alive 3 and I liked those albums but the same thing happened with them it took quite a while before they ever released anything good again well come to think of it I, I don't think they ever did but uh uh, so I was kind of in a transition. What am I going to listen to? And I actually listened quite a lot to the the Ripper Owens era of, of Judas Priest. Mm. I, I went to see concerts with him and, and so on. So I was a bit into that one. I really didn't care for the albums that they released, but there were a few songs and mm -hmm. Ripper could surely do them live. I mean, it was a great mm -hmm. vocalist. So right. uh, it was a bit of a downer. Let's, I didn't release an album. Absolutely. Let's get this question out of the way before we talk about Painkiller and focus in on that. What is your favorite Judas Priest album? And it's okay to like Jugulator. If that's your pick, that's your pick. Mark, let's start with you. Well, um, for a long, long time, it was Sad Wings of Destiny was my favorite Judas Priest record, but honestly, and I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie, it's this one. This one to me is the gold standard that I think all Judas Priest records need to be compared to, and I, I just, it clicks all my boxes as a guitar player, as a guy who produces records and makes, you know, music. Uh, it, this is to me just one of the perfect records, one of those ones that people would love to say I was involved with it. Nice. Daniel, how about you? Yeah, of course, this is my number one uh, Judas Priest record and I think there are parts of later records that uh, are on par with this one that are uh, as as good but there's never been another record from Judas Priest that is perfect from you know from the start to the ending there are some moments on each mm -hmm. and every record after this one this one but uh, not more than for, for me at least you know three four songs that are great and then the rest is uh, not as good uh, but this is, to me, just a perfect record, and uh, to this day it sounds fresh. And come to think of it, they released it even before Metallica released released the Black Album, and before mm -hmm. Megadeth released uh, Countdown to Extinction. So, th so they were were a big part of this movement, and I guess they uh, affected or, or made the uh, the the popular bands more aware of how it was supposed to sound and. Uh, Back in the day, in 1980, they did it once, and then in 1990, they did it again. Well, I'm going to be contrarian, not deliberately, um, but I'm going back to the 70s. My favorite album is Stained Class. Yeah, and, and, you know, like Mark said, it would be easy, far too easy to pick Sad Wings, but there's just something about all those pieces coming together on Stained Class, which is very similar to Painkiller in that it closes the door one era and opening opens up a completely new era for the band, one that they then rode into the 80s. 
So it was a dynamic shift for them, but it was just just every single song on that album. It was where KK and Glenn really emerged as um, a dangerous guitar duo. <laughs> and Rob's vocals, oh, yeah. Uh, well, Rob's vocals have always been, oh, yeah. Um, but just the whole package came together as a band for that album. So uh, released in September 1990, it was... Uh, well over two years following the release of their previous studio album, Ram It Down. What was your first impression of the album when listening to it either then or now? I mean, you, one of the things I think is important about this album is that it does kick off with an incredible drum intro into the title track. Right from the get-go, um, the importance of having a bombastic, bombastic percussive introduction sets the tone for the the whole album. And I, I was just listening to another podcast this morning by the I Love It Loud podcast guys. We're discussing that very thing, the importance of drum intros to songs. And for me, you know, they didn't mention any of the songs that I'd pick. Painkiller, uh, Kisses King of the Night uh, of the Mountain. Mountain. And uh, Megadeth's Rust in Peace, Polaris which isn't an opening track, but in terms of the drum intro, uh, really sets it up. So comparing it to Ram It Down for me is easy because I was a fan at the time and I'd been really let down after Turbo where they went back into the super heavy metal, but the drumming completely clashed with the material that it had a lot of drum programming coming into it rather than traditional drumming and dave holland was never that type of drummer he was a 70 he was a 60s guy you know which band was he in mark was it trapeze um, I think so. Yeah. I think so. so he had come up from a completely different era uh, you know era he was like a phil rudd you know four on the floor <clears throat> very straightforward perfect for British Steel, perfect for point of entry, you know, l getting a little bit less perfect with each album from that point on, from Screaming to Defenders, you know, and, well, Turbo, you know, so the drum machine really took over. And that was my first impression when listening to Painkiller, is what a shift it was in terms of its sonic dynamics to the previous album. And Ram It Down, surprisingly, even though I didn't like it as much as at the time, has really grown on me, other than that god-awful cover of Johnny Be Good. Um, <laughs> it's got some fantastic heavy songs that if Scott Travis had been playing on them with yep. more appropriate percussion, would have been absolutely perfect for. So you've already kind of given your um, your first impressions, Daniel, but, you know, go, go back to that point that you, you make on it, you know, on, you know, the the real thing that you focus in on off this album. Well, you mean Painkiller? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Pa uh, it's, uh, I thought you were talking about Ram It Down, but, but uh, uh, for me, it's, it was the drumming, and I had just sort of opened up to listening more to the drums because my favorite band had also changed drummer, and it made a big difference because... Uh, he kind of updated the older classic material. Um, if you listen to Kiss Alive 3 from 1993, uh, songs from the 70s like Deuce and, and, and stuff like that sounded current. And when I listened to it, I was just a kid, but, uh, but uh, I understood right away that it, it was the drums that made the difference. Uh, so the opening... I mean, Deuce from 75 is a classic, but when you're a kid in the 90s, you liked Deuce on Live 3 because it sounded so updated. And he did a lot of other songs as well, like Parasite and stuff like that, that sounded just awesome. Uh, so I had to open up to, to, to drumming and it being a big part of the music I liked. And then, of course, hearing the intro to Painkiller blew me away. And to this day, when people refer to drumming, they always refer to that intro so i don't think it's been topped since i mean it's just madness when it starts and i'm sure uh, young kids starting off drumming they look at, to that record and try to do that intro because it's so such such a dynamic intro and um, the first kiss album i bought asylum had the similar opening as you said uh, um, julian uh, 
just big drums. And the first record I ever bought was Stay Hungry with Twisted Sister. And if you remember, We're Not mm. Gonna Take It, it was a, like a simple drum beat. But anyway, it was a drum beat that, uh, you know, got your attention. Mm-hmm. So when I thought of it, every album that got me interested had that drum beat that you were talking about, introduction of a song, Painkiller, uh, Asylum by Kiss, and also Stay Hungry had one one of those songs that really grabbed you with the drum. So, so drums, Scott Travis and Halford to me are so important when, when it comes to me listening to Judas Priest, because I also like Fight that someone mentioned, one of you, uh, like War of Words is one yes. of my favorite records as well. Uh, it's not it's not as, as cons- consistent as Painkiller, but there are like three or four songs that are great. Immortal Sin. Into it's like a, a, the Pit. Yeah. yeah, Into the Pit. That's a great one. A little Crazy. Nailed to the Nailed Gun. Nailed to the Gun. Yeah. So to me, it was pretty good that you had, on the on the one hand, you had Judas Priest with Ripper in the late 90s. And on the other hand, you had Halford with Fight, and then later on, Half- they had a band called Halford. So you had like two for the price of one. So, so I, I liked that back in the day, in the late 90s, early 2000s. So, so drumming was really important for me, yeah. I guess, Mark, we've gotten your first impressions. So let's jump into sound and production on Ram It Down. As a producer, <laughs> as a musician. Ram It Down, I, I want to talk about Ram It Down, damn it. No, Painkiller, you're right. <laughs> it would have been a much more contrarian episode to talk about Ram It Down. I was looking at one one word and reading another sentence. Uh, but, you know, the sonics and production of Painkiller, they really are different than anything else that they had done in the catalog to that time. And it became, to a certain extent, something that they maintained with... Um, very glassy sound um, was a feature on Jugulator as well, going down the road with, you know, uh, what's his name? God, can't, I can't think today. But what are your thoughts Ripper on the sound Owens. of Ripper? Thank you. You, yeah. know, you can't think of Ripper and you're talking about Judas Priest. Shame on you. Um, <laughs> sound of production, Mark. Um, yeah, I mean, again, this was, in, in my opinion, step up i mean judas priest never had bad sounding records tom alum or whatever his alum or whatever his last name was um he did always did great stuff with them i i, I liked screaming for vengeance i thought defenders of the fave was pretty good it was a little darker sounding but it was pretty good um ram it down not bad sounding as far as production but i mean this album just had it all i mean the guitars are fantastic the drums sound good uh the bass guitar uh very interesting on this record because it has a sort of synthesizer bass sound in mixed with it. It's almost like Ian Hill's playing his Spectre bass there and underneath that he has like a lot of his keyboard bass going on. Uh, Don Airy has been known or has been, I've read that he did do some session work on Painkiller with them. And uh, in fact, Ian Hill was apparently ill for some of the recording of it and they did use some synthesizer bass in there to replace Ian Hill's bass playing, which to me didn't do anything bad to it. I mean, I don't think anybody now, if I, if this is the first you've ever heard of it, I don't think it's going to change your opinion of ba- a painkiller now because of that. But um, it's just incredible. I mean, one of the things that people might not know is that this, this album was recorded on Merivelle Studios in France and also on Whistlerlord in the Netherlands. Now, a lot of records that have sold huge copies, a la Hysteria, was done at Whistlerlord as well. And a couple of other big records, I'm sure, down the line were done there. Why? Because, you know, when you go to a foreign country like that, you know, you don't tend to party as much because, you know, you're in a foreign place. You tend to buckle down a bit more on it. You know, well, you you would think at least. I mean, I don't I can't imagine that Judas Priest went out and, you know, lit the night on fire every single night. The the album sounds great. And I mean, the, the sound of it essentially at the end of the day is the most important thing. So I think the studio was a was a factor in it. But of course, I think that the bottom line at the end of the day was the producer. I mean, they had a vision of it. They obviously wanted to make a record that was very powerful, 
they wanted to showcase Scott. And like you guys were saying before about the drum introductions, which were also important. I mean, this was around the era of where all these kind of drums were, were very important. You you guys all named off a bunch of albums that had fantastic drum intros. I mean, one that wasn't mentioned was Hot for Teacher. I mean, look at that drum beginning. A lot of people wanted to copy that one as well. And that's still one of the most complicated ones to do correctly uh, as a drummer. So, you know, Scott Travis, I think, was, was a big factor in it. But the production is obviously something that needs to be looked at. And that Chris Sandita's guy did a, did a really, really really good job on it. I mean, that, that guitar sound that they had for on rhythm guitars, it has a lot of chorusing on the guitars itself. And usually what that would tend to do on a, on a guitar is make it sound softer and not so aggressive. But the way he did it made it sound just like razor blades. Obviously, I think what he did is he probably took and scooped out a lot of the low frequencies out of the chorus and boosted up the the top end of the chorus effect and that made it much more like aggressive sounding and much more in your face. So the production of this is really, really well done. And don't forget one more thing. Sorry, one of the one of the uh, early things about this was it's a completely digital recording. You look at the CD DDD right across that top of it. I mean, there were still tendencies back then to get CDs that had like AAD or ADD or whatever. Like, but this was a total digital thing, and priests were very open to using digital as far back i think even as uh, the live album there uh the one for the turbo tour i forget what that album's called but that live album at least yeah no, no not the one no, live. it's got priest live live that's priest it, yeah. Live, yeah yeah one that one out. that one was all digital as well and i remember they mentioned that on the the liner credits that that was a digital recording as well so they were very open to that uh way of doing recording now and, you know, I think it, it worked for their sound, definitely. Yeah, Daniel, what are your thoughts on the sound and production of the album overall? Well, I think Mark pretty much covered it, but uh, I just have a personal uh, view and take on this. And to me, bass has never been a big part of the sound for me when I've listened to Judas Priest. Not even, uh, I think the bassist in Judas Priest is pretty anonymous. Uh, both on records that I've heard and and live. To me, it's like a bassist in ACDC. I mean, they're there, but uh, they're not really there. To me, Priest, at least Painkiller, is a lot about big drums, screaming guitars, and the vocals. And I'm sure there's a good bass somewhere under there, but I haven't listened to it a lot, to be, to be frank. Uh, but... Uh, uh, it does. Uh, the, the bass works, but to me, it's always been about guitars, drums, and Rob Halford. So uh, it really doesn't matter to me who, who the bassist is in Judas Priest. No, it probably only matters to Ian Hill, and that's perfectly <laughs> fine. Um, but I yeah. think the, the point about Don Airy, you know, doubling. He actually doubled. He didn't just replace to to give it yeah. more oomph so that the performance was there. And that was a very common trick with the Moog, you know, to, mm-hmm. to use that. Kisses use their keyboardist to, you know, supplement various parts of the show musically, not only to fill the holes left by a lack of rhythm guitar, but to enhance bass sections. So I think it works very well here. And that it's not, you know, as Daniel says, particularly noticeable, but I bet if they took it out, it would be because i think it contributes to the the solidity solidity of the foundation that the backbeat you know the the critical sync up between bass and drums that provides the whole foundation musically for the rest of it and when you have an outstanding you know drum performance like scott you know obviously doubted i'd love the story of how that intro to painkiller was nothing more than him warming up in the studio how many times have we heard that you know king of the mountain was a warm-up heavens on fire heavens on fire vocally was a vocal warm-up these little warm-up sections by musicians that become signature pieces to songs completely unintended whereas you sometimes have a very very overthought out song intro walk this way is a great example of a strong drum intro to a song that was horrendously thought out by steven tyler um you know and then painstakingly executed to become that but you know that was just on feels he was going from you know an emotion 
a sweet emotion, um, you know, of what it needed to sound like in his head. And it, then Joey was able to create it. So you get those elements of the drums, the bass underneath and Don Airy, obviously with the keyboards because they, they are keyboards coming together to provide that. Sonically, the whole album is simply a setting for the guitars to go to war and Rob to be a banshee because over and over the sonics of the album are so well balanced between all the songs and there are songs of varying styles and tempos on this that they successfully and that's probably the most shocking thing and where Chris uh, really takes credit for keeping it all unified but allowing them to be separate songs and not you don't just listen to the album and think well now it's over it's like listening to the same song you know you've had different chapters in it and that's what i love about the production and what he's really brought into it the definition of the guitars mm -hmm. you can hear kk you can hear glenn you can hear those guitar notes coming together um perfectly all right let's talk about some of the songs singles singles from this album were painkiller and a touch of evil do you concur or do you think some other songs might have been better choices or might they have done a different order for the release of those painkiller of course was the leadoff single daniel i think painkiller was the, the perfect leadoff single uh but as a second single i, I would have picked another song um, um uh, it's a good song the second single touch of evil but uh to me there are more uh, powerful songs that they could have used and if I would have picked one it would have been Nightcrawler because I think you have everything from the cinematic intro cool lyrics uh, and it's sort of epic and heavy metal at the same time and uh, the the chorus is rememberable and uh, I think it would stick with a lot of people and uh, vocals and guitars are still awesome and uh, that is maybe my one of my favorite songs of of this album so i think that would have worked perfectly touch of evil is a bit you know a bit slow and and so on uh, it didn't really take off but uh they could have picked a lot of songs but if i would have been in charge i would surely have picked nightcrawl i think it's a perfect single good pick mark what are your thoughts on that uh, well, uh, actually, I was surprised that Painkiller was the first single. It's a great song, great single. I, I really love it. It's one of my favorite songs and metal songs of all time, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, it, it, they, they they made a great choice in making it that a video as well. It was really cool, cause that kind of whole black and white sort of video approach that they did for it. And, you know, because it's such a long song, it's kind of, you know, you always wonder why they would pick it. I'm sure there might have been some sort of an edit done somewhere, but it was such a great song. I think it's a it's a great single. And of course, if you're going to come back and say, you know, the priest is back and we have a great drummer, what better song to use to, you know, trumpet that statement than the than Painkiller. Um, Touch of Evil. I've always liked that song and a classic, classic example of what we were talking about earlier about the synth reinforcing the bass. This song right there, that riff, you can totally hear that synth bass underneath there with that doing it. And it, it, it definitely gives it that oomph in it. And it's always been a kind of a live favorite. I think that live it's a touch heavier, of course, than it is on album. Uh, but it's, it's a good song. I mean, honestly... I think another song that would have been a good single, and this is just me maybe, but it had the right length, it had the right impact, it was a touch a little bit lighter than Painkiller, is uh, Hell Patrol. I think that's a great song, you know, and I just love the ending of that song, that, that those huge cannon fires at the end, and then it just goes, and, and then it goes right into all guns blazing. I mean, that side A... Is, is people who work on production should take a good look at that and realize how that track listing is. From one to five, I mean, Painkiller, Hell Patrol, All Guns Blazing, Leather Rebel, Metal Meltdown. I mean, by the end of that song, you're probably gasping for air if you're listening to it on headphones. I mean, it's such one after another. And that's why, as Julian said, the, the track listing is so important because then in side two, you start off with Nightcrawler. A little bit, it eases you in a little bit more, but it's still heavy. Between the hammer and the anvil, it's kind of that slow beginning in there as well. So they kind of give you a bit of breathing space in side two, because side A is so like, whoa. But I mean, what a great way to end the album, though. Battle him in one shot of glory. That's like one of the better 
endings to a record I could think of. It's it's incredible. But you know, I I think Health Patrol would be a, another good single. I just love it that you refers to albums as side A and side B. Did anyone <laughs> bu- did you buy vinyl at this time as well? I mean, uh, I surely picked up the CD. I had it on cassette, but my sister okay. had lots, yeah. lots of albums at that time. So yeah. that was cassette too. So because cassette for me, for me. It was CD. Okay, CD all the way here, and so I, I had stopped reflecting on side A and, and side side B. But that's a good point. You mean? I mean, they start off with some good rockers, and Hell Patrol is one of my favorites as well. I mean, uh, it uh, short and sweet. And I like the drumming as well here. It's like machine gun drumming. It's sort of a modern sounding love gun, you know, that's classic from Kiss. <laughs> I mean, the drums really stick out and uh, good rocker. So that's a good pick. Yeah, it's hard not to let our Kiss connections come through when we talk about oh, these sorry albums. About that. Because something Mark mentioned with the video being shot in black and white and being very cutaway scenes, you know, almost strobish. Who then in '92 did a very black and white, cutaway, yeah. strobish kind of video? But Kiss and Unholy, who also went with a very aggressive, metallic, assertive declaration for the first single off their album. So I think Painkiller is the perfect album. It was again, it was an exclamation point at a time in the music industry when bands like that were going by the wayside. I mean that that shift had started in 1990 by the time this album came out after you know the delays from the court case. So, so you as priests, they were on point with this, and Kiss was a year or two late, as they often are with as, the black and white video. Well, yeah. they had the death of a drummer to contend with, and the delays yeah, of, the, of their a, hot in the shade. It's a pattern. Tour. It's a pattern through. They, they they were late, but look, you know what? It didn't make that much difference to Judas Priest because Judas no. Priest's following has never been as massive as you know, say Iron Maiden mm-hmm. or, or or some, because they do just cross that border into the a little bit too heavy for uh, your decaffeinated culture. So, which. It is unfortunate. Uh, second single, I I think there should have been three singles from this because I certainly think a touch of evil is a fantastic song that should have been a you know been a single. But I would have followed that one that uh, heavy punch with all guns blazing just to reinforce mm-hmm. the point that if people didn't think that Judas Priest was back and that was just a fluke, then we're just going to show you for certain it's no fluke whatsoever and then go to the soft side and say, see, we're also sensitive to not just grinders. So, All right, move it, moving on. Um, drums. We, we've kind of talked a lot about the drums on this, and I mean, I, I had a, a bit of a discussion point between Dave Holland and Scott Travis here that we've already kind of covered in a lot of our other points. So let me just flip this question around. How much a painkiller is about Scott Travis? You know, 90 percent? Is that really the the foundation that he was finally able to do on drums, what they had had to add programming to on Ram It Down to do? Because I am of the firm opinion that, yes, you know, Painkiller is what it is because of having a drummer like Scott Travis, a very, a very technical uh, gifted. I mean, I knew him in Racer X as well, Mark. Um so straight to you, musician guy who does drum programming. How much of this is down to Scott over Man and Machine? Um, to be fair, and let me just explain. I promise it won't be very long. Uh, I say that it's 25%. Now let me explain. 25% drums, 25% guitars, 25% Rob Halford's vocals, and 25% production that those four quarters make what this album is because Scott Travis's drums obviously up the ante of this whole thing a thousand percent because his drumming it just was another level I mean every song that he plays on this record it's just you could you just scratch your head and smile and go wow like listen to that drumming like there isn't one song on here that doesn't make you sit there and go, this is just fantastic drumming. Like, I just couldn't imagine Dave Holland doing what's going on in this record right now. Then, you know, but then if you, lo- you look at the guitar aspect of it, the guitars were up a, a, a huge step from previous records. And I and I refer you to Metal Meltdown. If, if, if you weren't confident that the guitars were 
upped it a bit. I mean, they made you realize it with that introduction. I mean, you have like a minute-long solo guitar bit back and forth between KK and Glenn, that guitar soloing back and forth thing. I mean, that's right there. That's their kind of like painkiller intro-ish example on guitar. And then Rob Halford's vocals, as you guys said, was just incredible. He's always saying good on record, but like listen to some of these high notes and screeching and the aggression in his voice. And then, you know, Chris's production is is another important element of it. If he didn't give it that kind of sound and balls to it that it had, especially the drums, it wouldn't be the album that it is. But drumming-wise, obviously, a large portion of that has to go to Scott Travis. Yeah. Daniel? I think why Julian wants to say that it's like 90% of the album is because if you go through Judas Priest's career... Uh, the biggest difference from one album to another when it comes to the instruments, even if it's guitars or drums, is from the previous one to Painkiller. I mean, it's the biggest change ever in the career of Judas Priest, at least to me. Uh, So that's why you feel it's such a big impact. But there's a lot of bands with good drummers that uh, sound like crap as well. But but surely he was a big part of this, and he he took them into the future and uh, made them feel current again. Uh, Dave Holland would never have been able to do that. And imagine we can we talked about Graham it done with Scott Travis. Imagine Holland on Painkiller. No, no, I don't want to. (laughs) Don't don't do it. So uh, of course it was a big part of the sound, but. uh, the guitars and the the singing is important as well. But I mean, look, but look at Les Binks. Back when he was drumming, he was able to do double kick stuff too. He and he'd played on, you know, uh, stained stained class. Now imagine if that drumming was done with the production style of Painkiller mm-hmm. and had more to it. I mean, he was a drummer that was decent. He wasn't no Dave Hall. He was better than Dave Holland for sure. I think Les was. But you know, I agree. I totally agree though. It was the one album when you compare it to all the other albums that the drumming definitely stood out and knocked every other one on its butt so yeah but their their drummers you know either didn't stick with the band long enough to develop in parallel with how the guitarists were developing so that's an mm-hmm. important part of the judas priest story is how kk and glenn both developed and went into separate areas and some combined areas that allowed their, the guitar focus of the band to really blossom. And something quantifiable that you didn't mention, Mark, in yours, songwriting. Yeah. And, you, you know, I, I was just throwing 90% out there as a, as a flippant number. I, I don't know how much I'd actually, you know, put it down to Dave, but I think he does have at least, you know, 50% plus one vote um, as being a very important part of what this album is. I mean, you'd have to go and do a survey of Judas Priest fans and say, you know, what is the one word you think of when I say the word painkiller? And that'd be a very interesting thing to see who answers drums, who answers guitars. I don't think very many people would mention production. No offense to producers, but they often mm. get lost in the mix. <laughs> That's a bad one. Um, <laughs> all right, let's let's move on on that terrible pun. Let's move on. I'm not going to go back into the discussion on Ian Hill because we've covered it and Don Harry. Let's get straight to our favorites on this album. What are your three top picks from Painkiller, Daniel? Well, <laughs> we've actually covered them as well because uh, Painkiller is number one, and then uh, the Hell Patrol, Hell Patrol, and uh, Nightcrawler. I would pick those three. But you know, as with every great album, it can change from one day to another. But those three are so freakingly good. Uh, so uh, th- those are my three picks. Uh, uh, but you could pick others as well. Oh, I'm sure maybe someone will. Mark, how about you? Well, for me, it's pretty simple. Painkiller, number one. I mean, that's such a fantastic song. We went through it already at length here, why it is. Um, number, my number two is All Guns Blazing. I mean, when that song, I first heard it, when that twisting, the strangle, as soon as that came in, I was like, wow, this is incredible but as a producer i'll I'll have to say this 
I'm always bugged by that little bad edit that Sangritas did there between that first line. And there's like a little trail off the lane and you hear like his voice got cut in that that next line. I don't know. That's a really producer kind of nerdy thing. Forget about that. But, you know, it's it's just something I always picked out on headphones. Like, oh, why did he let that slip, that little bad edit? But anyways, uh, the song overall is really good. I mean, incredible song. High-paced guitar playing is incredible, fantastic. But my third song, and it's always been a favorite of mine, is One Shot at Glory. I always thought that mm-hmm. that song was a great way to end the record, and it had probably one of Rob's most, you know, grammatical singing that one shot at glory. That huge line at the end was like, holy shit, he went up there and probably grabbed his nuts really hard on that one. But it was so great. His singing is just another level for me, honestly. We keep talking about another level of drums, another another level of guitar, but his singing, honestly, uh, really stepped up on this record. Yeah, I mean, vocally, you really can't even compare this album to Screaming for Vengeance. The vocals are really, again, paradigm shift, next level, however you want to put it. All right, my top three painkiller, easy. You know, uh, to this day, that lasting impression of putting that in my Walkman on cassette, listening to it for the first time, volume was at its usual setting. Immediately after those drums started, the volume went up. It was just, uh, to this day, uh, it a great feeling all guns blazing i've already mentioned it and you mentioned it for the exact same reasons why i'm going to pick it it's the vocals the acrobatics there where all those things are dancing guitars are dancing drums are big and present and the vocals it's just it's it's like a band in a blender in a good way (laughs) Uh, so um the third pick is very very difficult to make because there are just so many good songs on this album that trying to narrow it down to three is really child abuse. Um, I'm going to have to go with Between a Hammer and an Anvil. Again, tempo, style, just to be a little bit different than the other two. I could easily have done A Touch of Evil because I do love it, and I think it's a great stylistic song, but I, you know, just looking at the tracks there, Hammer is saying, yeah, you love me more. I do. Everyone loves Hammer and Anvils. No love for for a Nightcrawler. Well, oh, just I, just I not the same it. not the same level of love. When I have to pick three, I can't I can't have you know three three way ties. You know that's just cheating. <laughs> now that's the problem with this album. There the yeah. songs are so good. It's really hard to 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 pick three. But uh, uh, I I just have to mention Nightcrawler again because I think. Many of the songs we we talked about are kind of similar, you know, Hell Patrol, Organs Blazing, Between Their Hammer and the Anvil are all good rockers. While Nightcrawler has something more, I think, to offer. It's it's a bit more epic, but well, that's just my taste. Yeah, a bit more maidenish, Nightcrawler, which in a, in a, in a good sense that it's telling a little bit of yeah. well, Jack the Ripper part two maybe, you know, the Ripper. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. So are there any two songs that you dislike on this album, Mark? I honestly don't dislike anything on this album. I mean, to me, this is one of those rare records that is a complete listen through. No skips whatsoever on this. But I mean, if I had to pick if I had to pick one song, I think is the weakest song on the record. I think the only song that took me the longest to like as much as the other ones, believe it or not, is Leather Rebel for some reason. But uh, now it's on equal playing field, but for some reason when it first came out, that was the one that I was kind of like, eh, I don't like this one as much. But now, it's it's the same. Yeah, Daniel, uh, can you even pick two? No way, no way in hell. But uh, if I would have to pick one, I would say that bonus track they added like <laughs> ten or fifteen years later. That yeah, well. piece of crap. I didn't like that one. I thought they should have picked the the, the song uh, that you mentioned that uh, Scott Travis did a cover of. It ended up on Rob Halford's live album mm-hmm. with Halford. Yeah, Heart of a Lion. If you listen to that to that one, they uh, it must be a demo from the late eighties on 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 that uh, live album because I think that would could have been something if they did the whole production production thing with it's a catchy chorus and uh, if you um, you know make it a little bit heavier 
it would have worked just fine. Yeah, so I can't pick two. Um, it, it simply is that strong of an album. Yeah, there are, yep. there are some that are a marginal step down, but nothing that would get anywhere near me saying, oh, I don't like it or I dislike. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't have those feelings about any song on this album, including that bonus track, which was an, a legit outtake. So much of the bonus tracks that they did when they remastered the catalog were just bullshit, you know, thrown on different albums in the era that it was recorded. And most of them were from the Twin Turbo era anyway, or just, you know... Uh, just cop out live tracks this one with the bonus tracks living bad dreams i do actually like but there's no way in hell it would have fit on there it was oh. almost you know power balladly um doesn't have the right sonics to fit in would have been a great b-side you know, back then, just because it was completely different, make a great B-side to a Touch of Evil single, um, you know, rather than something else. Um, and I'm, I'm just glad that we have stuff like that fi that did finally yeah, come course. out because we didn't get any of, like, the, the super cool stuff, you know, the early era. You know, we've never had legitimate releases for those demos. So at least for Painkiller on the remaster, it yeah. felt legitimate and it had Leather Rebel. Which, you know, a live cut of that. And I think, Mark, you, you kind of mentioned that one took time to grow on you. Uh, you know, same. You know, it was one, but the live version of it just reinforces how cool of a song it is. And, you know, just makes it perfect. Um, I think it's it's a big decision to leave off a song like Living Bad Dreams because it certainly has some uh, radio potential. And a lot of bands fall for that. If you think about other albums at the time like the black album they surely put put nothing else matters on that one uh, and uh, if you go to revenge from kiss they put that uh, every time i look at you on that album and it doesn't fit the albums i mean like revenge which was supposed to be such a heavy hard rocking album and then you have every time i look at you uh, of course we all like the more songs the merrier sort of but uh, it doesn't fit the album, so I think it was a really good and probably a hard decision to make this a solid rocker all the way through. And I think more bands should do it like that and, you know, use the other songs for, like you said, B-sides and stuff like that. Because it is a pretty good song, so it did take a, a lot of courage to not fall into that trap that so many of the yep. other bands, exactly like you said, Daniel, chasing, you know the commercial acceptability and crossover and judas priest says nah we're good mm. you know mm. let's keep it heavy <laughs> yeah know? exactly yeah and yeah, and mark I, think... I mean as someone who you know records other songs for your albums and you leave stuff on the cutting room floor or you know you file it away i'm sure um as one did come up on your your compilation album the deed is done right you know mm -hmm. so you you do leave songs out but it is a painful process isn't it yeah it, it, it is it, it definitely is i mean i think it was was a joe elliott or somebody from that very good Def leopard documentaries i saw or the making of hysteria he said that your your songs are like your children and it's like you're telling them which one you know getting rid of one is like telling which one is going to grow up i think that's actually Stephen Tyler, Tyler. Said, uh, you're trying yeah. to you're trying to kill my children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, because I mean, you because the, the thing is, what what some people don't realize from the general public perspective is that the time and effort that you put in as a songwriter into these songs, and the kind of you know joy you get when you figure out a really good chorus part for it, or a really good harmony for it. Now all of a sudden you're like, yeah, now I really like the song. It's coming through now. And then all of a sudden you have a producer, or even have yourself, and you listen back to it and say, yeah, you know what? It's it's good, but it just doesn't fit with this record, and I'm gonna have to leave it off. You know, it is a painful choice to make. You know what I mean? You know, because you worked so much on it and you believed in it so much that to say that it's not going to be heard by the rest of the world is sometimes painful right but i think it's a i think it's a it was the right move sorry daniel go ahead uh that's why you need outside producers most yeah. of the time you know you know hitchcock got it correct when he said kill your darlings i mean they're too close you can't really make the choice yourself you need someone with an objective uh, 
vision and uh, they can tell you if it's supposed to be on the album or not. Uh, because we've seen this over and over with bands who, who who produces their own albums, they they tend to leave stuff on there that shouldn't be there. So I think outside producers are, are a lot of times very important. Yeah, or especially a- when you have these big rock heroes, rock stars that think they know everything and they are kind of megalomaniacs. You need someone to step up and tell them this is not for this album. Use it for something else. Yeah, and Kalodner is a great example of uh, someone in the A&R role who tells you that you come in with your your album songs as half of those are good, you need to go back and write more. And I'm thinking specifically like the Get a Grip era with Aerosmith, that he, he said you need to write more songs. So they went back and wrote a lot more songs and ended, ended up not using some of the ones that had been considered good from the first batch. So, you know, you, you have to have that. But this album didn't need it. Or maybe it did, and we just don't know about all the ones that were left on the cutting room floor. But, uh, you know, that, that's part of the interesting thoughts on it. Um, I want to wrap up quickly here. But this bookends the original kind of run of Priest, and, and specifically Halford, the voice of a band, at a time where big bands were losing their vocalists. Maiden would lose Dickinson uh, within mm-hmm. a, a year or so. Um, Rob left in 93 and ripper came in a few years later did you stay with priest or did you move on after painkiller and the the kind of the demise of the traditional band daniel as i mentioned previously i kind of liked it because you had rob halford doing these great albums on uh, by himself and they pretty much sounded like uh, painkiller on steroids i mean he went a bit further at least with fight it felt more like of a industrial uh, sound but still you could feel that it was part parts of painkiller was uh, was also were also in, in this these albums and later on he had halford which was a pretty good band as well and ripper could bring it live and he could bring it on record uh, i don't know if you've seen this tour he did recently with two other metal singers there are three lead singers that go around the world uh, playing clubs and doing Metal God Star, wasn't it's, it? Yeah, I think Were it was. The, was yes. Jeff Scott Soto one of them? I don't think so. I think there were mm. two other guys. But anyway, the point is, he's a hell of a singer. And of course, you can you can really never replace... It was the same destiny as Bruce... Was it Bruce Bailey or what was it called? in Blaze Bailey. Blaze Bailey. Blaze Bailey, yeah. yeah. He really didn't stand a chance, did he? Because they tried to do it differently, didn't they? Yeah. They tried to have a different sounding singer, or at least he had different strengths that really didn't come forward, uh, come into fruition when he did old material. It didn't really work. So they become pretty much they became pretty much a club band in a year or two, um, and Priest did as well. And I actually I remember going and seeing them in Stockholm in 2000 i think it was 2001 uh, with ripper and it was a small club it was an old brewery and we were like maybe a thousand people there uh but as my first favorite band was kind of half of it was replacement guys i had sort of a you know kiss uh i had sort of a soft spot for you know replacement guys and you know underdogs and uh, listen to the music it's not really who's in the band it's the music and i went to see rip rowan's uh, do doing that show in stockholm and he just sang like a banshee it was a great show uh and the good thing when when a band becomes less popular is the, the diehard fans stay but the rest disappears so I mean, I, I went with a girl to that concert and we were up front uh, and she said, ah, I can stand here with you and we can rock on. So you had the opening act. It, it worked well. But then when Priest got on stage, it went, it was just madness. People were pumping their fists and moving around. So she quickly came to the conclusion that she was standing on, it's called balcony in the, in the, in the, in the back. And when I looked back, there were just every girlfriend we're on that balcony standing. And I told told the girl that uh, if someone asks you about Judas Priest, you know, come, comes on to you or something, you just have to say one thing and they will think you're cool. 
I liked it better when Halford was the singer. So I told her that. That was the only thing she knew about Judas Priest. And every guy coming up to her, she said that. And like, wow, so uh, you're really into Judas Priest. Then she had to get away. But that was the perfect line. Because that's the idea that most people have. Just because it's a replacement guy, it's worse. And of course, it's hard to top Halford. But I think actually Ripper did a, quite a good job. And he managed to do the old material. And the new material sounded also pretty good so so i went to see them and i had a hell of a time yeah interestingly when you think of blaze and maiden we've at least been lucky that dickinson will sing blaze stuff i don't think i've ever heard halford sing any ripper stuff and dickinson has absolutely owned the sign of the cross and some of the because the songs aren't bad from the albums that they made with blaze bailey Let's uh, let's be absolutely clear. Angel and the Gambler, you know, Sign of the Cross, uh, the Klansman. Oh my God, the Klansman. You know, so they have some very good songs on Virtual X, I uh, or whatever it was, and uh, Eleven. Thank you, X. I was right. So <laughs> you know, thinking off the top of my head, head here. Um, I don't, I, don't, I don't think the uh, the uh, Rip Rowan's albums are on Spotify even. They're not. They you, are you, doing you, like you, no. you can barely get demolition nowadays, and nope. it often has a sure. price. And I I actually regret throwing mine out because I had Jugulator, I had Demolition, I did not stick with the band at the time because I was really focused on other things, and I never bothered with Fight, I never bothered with whatever Halford was doing that week because he seemed to have all these different projects going. So mm. because it wasn't priest traditional, I, my focus was just elsewhere. So I. I bought jugulator i gave it a listen did not like it and to this day i don't care for it but i've at least listened to it and owned it same with demolition did not care for it i like live in london because then you get some of the other stuff being done as well um and ripper does a fantastic job on it so it's not him it's you know it was like kk was writing too much and it wasn't enough of a, a band effort on those albums mark yeah well i i have to agree i mean I, I stuck with Priest, though. I liked Jugulator when, when they first put out the single Bullet Train. It, there was a cassette single that was available at a record store that you can just take from the counter. And I thought it was great. I really liked Bullet Train. Uh, that record, it's not the, the strongest record, but the, as I say, half that record is pretty good. Demolition, I thought was terrible. I didn't like that record yeah. at all. And that, the problem with that was Glenn Tipton became the producer. And when he became the head of the band, that way it was not good. I don't think they needed somebody who had more of an actual production brain to do stuff like that. Uh, Halford, uh, he lost me when he did two. I thought it was the most horrendous record I'd ever heard in my life. Uh, but when he came out with Halford, uh, the, he redeemed myself. He redeemed himself, uh, and he opened for Iron Maiden when they did the Brave New World tour here in Toronto. He was he was he was resurrected. <laughs> yeah, you know that was a yeah that was a good that was a good show and that was a good good uh, album for him uh, when he came out with that. But I, I I liked I liked him. I thought Ripper was a great singer. But he got you know he 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 was one of those singers where I'll give you a really quick example because I know we're running short on time here. But um, when they came to Toronto, the first couple songs they did they I had these guys in front of me like you know arms folded and then they when they realized that he could sing good they looked at each other and go yeah this guy is good he can sing so he had a lot of people to convince when they first came but there was always still those people in the crowd where he would do that part in ripper where he goes what's my name and you have to go back and yell ripper there was always these two jackasses in front of me he'd go what's my name and he always yell back tim what's my name tim and he'd get so he started getting annoyed by those guys right but you know, he always had the problem with that is he always had to convince people that he was as good as he was. Nothing wrong with that. I'm Tim the Enchanter for my fans of Monty <laughs> Python. Um, all right, let's end on on just uh, one quick final topic. Uh, we, we're not going to talk about Glenn and the current state of Priest. Maybe we save that for another episode uh, where we talk about another Priest album. Uh, but where do you rank this within the band's catalog, Daniel? Well, we've already said that it's number one, isn't it? For you. Painkiller is number one. Mark. So, uh, Mark Mark will agree with me. Yeah, it, it is my this is my favorite record. I mean, I'll just say this, though. Honorable mention 
Firepower that just came out recently was really, oh. really, really, really fucking good. That that would be a whole different show, Mark, because it is mm-hmm. I've got a print of the album art signed by Claudio on my wall behind uh, the drape. Cool. Uh, but for me, I'm a traditionalist. I'm going to listen to British Steel before I listen to Painkiller. I'm going to listen to Sad Wings of Destiny and Staying Class and even Rockerola, Killing Machine. Um, I, I, I think the only ones that come behind it are definitely Ram It Down and um, Point of Entry. Point of Entry? Point of Entry is a jam album, and I just don't like that because they, they wrote it on the spot in Spain. What, what happens when you go to nice foreign places and kind mm. of force yourself to work? Um, and then, of course, you know, Jugulator and Demolition are down at the bottom. So it's, again, a very high bar that Judas presets. So even though it's not near the top of mine, it's not, there is no bottom other than those two particular albums that i don't really think uh much of at all but it's a fantastic album so let's leave that there if you have an opportunity there's a really cool promo item for this album when it was released columbia issued a sharpest cut sampler and it's obviously the same saw blade design as on the painkiller album but it's got 10 hits from the catalog and it's packaged in like faux um electric saw blade replacement packaging so it's just really cool it's a really dorky little promo item with 10 songs the 10th one is a mystery one it also came on cassette uh, as well though not as coolly packaged all right let's leave that there since i have a meeting to get to mark and daniel thank you for joining me daniel thank you for picking painkiller and for being available to join us so for now for mark daniel myself thanks for joining us we'll see you next time Thank you for watching or listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us, like us, or even leave us a review. You can find us and join the conversation on Facebook. <laughs>